In the winter of 1483, Henry Tudor appeared to be exactly what King Richard said he was, a man of no importance who possessed neither a serious claim to the throne nor any support for it. Ignored by the vast majority of Englishmen in the autumn, Henry had fled back to his Brittany bolt hole with his tail firmly between his legs. He was, it seemed, a hapless, pathetic figure with nothing to offer England but lies. By contrast, Richard appeared to have steadied the ship and shown the sort of decisive leadership subjects ought to expect of their king. But, as history teaches us so frequently, appearances can be deceptive. In the aftermath of the October Rebellion, Richard's priority was to secure control of the troublesome South. Whilst he had crushed the rebellion, he would need to stamp his authority in the region if he was to prevent further unrest, and he could ill afford a repeat dose of what had occurred in the autumn. If there was a next time, then things might be different. The rebels might be better organised and led. Henry's invasion fleet might remain intact and actually effect a landing. The weather, too, might not be his friend next time. So he had to be certain of the South's loyalty, or, if not loyalty, then at least acceptance of his rule. In January 1484, almost a hundred rebels were attainted by Parliament, but even before that, Richard had begun to appoint men he trusted to posts of authority in the South. They would be responsible for local order, serve as justices of the peace, take charge of strategically important castles, and have commissions of array, permitting them to raise troops when Richard required them. Now much has been made of this policy by Richard's modern opponents. His so-called plantation of northerners in the south, it is claimed, was unpopular and only increased resentment towards him. But, as always, a little perspective is needed on this issue. Firstly, after any regime change, some men gained lands and others lost. It certainly happened under Richard's brother, Edward IV. It's hard for us to grasp in our global society of the 21st century. But in the 15th century, local society was everything, from the highest lord down to the lowest peasant. The obligations that one family owed to another were the bedrock of late medieval life. The emphasis on identifying with a particular locality also meant that outsiders stuck out like the proverbial sore thumb. When a new northern lord also brought with him a northern retinue, it had an impact at all levels of local society, disrupting traditional loyalties. Let's not forget, though, that the vast majority of the southern ruling classes accepted the new regime, some enthusiastically, and others, no doubt, with great reluctance, but nevertheless, they accepted Richard's authority and played their expected part in local government and law enforcement. As always, it's helpful to put from one's mind what we know happened next. Without Henry Tudor, most likely Richard III's reign would have continued, and for all we know, prospered, underpinned by the local governing classes across the country, including the South. The problem for Richard was that when he needed to replace disaffected men with those he trusted, there was not an infinite supply of those. As his reign continued, the reservoir of trusted men he had at his disposal 
began to evaporate. It's quite possible that Richard saw the new appointments as purely a short-term policy whilst Henry Tudor remained a threat. But there is no doubt that where such men were employed during 1483-5, they often did cause resentment. Though that probably did not prompt many additional men to oppose their king outright, it might have persuaded a few more to go into voluntary exile with Henry, and too, it might have made a few more reluctant to fight for Richard when the critical moment came. In January 1484, Parliament met and rubber-stamped several pieces of legislation. The Act of Attainder against the October rebels, but also a measure referred to as titulus regius. In other words, an act confirming Richard's right to the throne. Much is made of this confirmation by Ricardians, but it was not unusual for Parliament to enshrine in law a political fait accompli, about which they could do nothing anyway. Throughout the Wars of the Roses, Parliament was used to punish the losers and honour the victors. As a yardstick of what was right, therefore, it was utterly meaningless. In this case, it's likely that the new Parliament would have contained many who favoured Richard, especially since some who would have been eligible to become MPs were already attainted or abroad. The fact that one of Richard's closest associates, the lawyer William Catesby, was elected Speaker of the Commons certainly suggests that. Those who did have any doubts about the legality of Richard's seizure of power, in the light of all the attainders, probably wisely kept them to themselves. Apart from clarifying the right of Richard to be king, Titulus Regius was also a crushing indictment of the morality of his late brother Edward IV and his methods of government. A stark contrast was made with Richard's own pure and just qualities. The Parliament of 1484 was also the first of a number of occasions when Richard required the key movers and shakers in society to swear loyalty to his regime and his heir. He repeated the exercise with the heads of the London merchant companies, the merchants who would bankroll any regime. All these oaths were a little worrying. A king who required men to keep swearing oaths of allegiance was a king who suspected that many harboured doubts about the legitimacy of his kingship. It was a good way, though, of making men reconsider their commitment. Richard could count on the support of many of the leading magnates of the realm. After all, they could have rebelled against him in October 1483, along with the Duke of Buckingham, but chose not to. Men such as John Howard, newly created Duke of Norfolk, and his son, Thomas Earl of Surrey, quickly became pillars of his new regime, since they owed their meteoric advancement to him alone. Similarly, Francis Viscount Lovell was a long-time friend whose loyalty was unquestionable. After the fall of Buckingham, increased influence was given to William Herbert, Earl of Huntingdon, who had married Richard's illegitimate daughter, Catherine and, significantly, Richard's young nephew, John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, carried increasing responsibility. All these men were well and truly on side then. But what about the two great northern magnates, without whom no king was safe? Thomas Lord Stanley and Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. Both had been promised much in return for their support in 1483, 
but they would want to see how far the rewards stretched before they committed permanently to Richard. There is an element of genuine tragedy about Richard III, which I suspect is why he garners so much sympathy even today. There's a sense that, though he was architect of his own downfall, he was also unfortunate. An excellent example of this occurred in 1484, when Richard required all the lords and bishops to swear an oath to his son and sole heir, Edward of Middleham. Very soon after, in March, Edward of Middleham died. This was a body blow to Richard's regime. A king without an heir was a king nervously looking over his shoulder. Nevertheless, despite that setback, by the summer of 1484, Richard had restored his control of the country, at least for the time being. But the continued presence of Henry Tudor was an ongoing problem, and one which it seemed Richard might need to solve by foreign rather than domestic policy. Henry Tudor was still in Brittany, where, before the disastrous October Rebellion, he had been joined in exile, as we know, by a growing number of ex-courtiers of Edward IV. By December 1483, though he had been defeated, Henry actually had even more such supporters. Their numbers swelled, in part, by the very failure of the recent revolts, whose leaders were therefore obliged to flee the wrath of Richard III. It was the presence of such manifestly Yorkist exiles that brought a change in Henry's approach. Previously, he had been presented very much as the heir of Lancaster, and therefore a threat, albeit a latent one, to the line of Yorkist kings. Such a wholly Lancastrian stance was no longer tenable or indeed desirable. Despite the reservations of die-hard Lancastrians, such as his loyal uncle Jasper Tudor, Henry knew that he had to appeal to a much broader base of support. In the autumn, to attract support from disaffected Yorkists, Henry had promised unity by means of a marriage to a daughter of the late King Edward IV. Now, if he wanted to be taken seriously by Yorkists, Henry had to give real substance to that promise. Accordingly, on Christmas Day, 1483, he took an oath in the cathedral at Rennes in Brittany that he would marry Edward IV's eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, as soon as he became king. Though some recalcitrant Lancastrians remained unconvinced, this was a critical commitment as far as the Yorkists were concerned. Henry's court in exile must have been a rather uncomfortable place at times, a potentially toxic blend of erstwhile opponents. Yet his supporters all had one thing in common. They had no alternative to Henry. So if they wanted to oppose Richard, they must bury their old differences. What united them then was therefore not a common set of aims or even aspirations, but a common enmity against Richard III. Who were these Yorkists? Well, the old Queen's brother, Sir Edward Woodville, was there, as was her son, Thomas Grey, Marquess of Dorset, and members of the influential West Country noble family, the Courtneys. But aside from that, there were no other Yorkist nobles. The rest were knights and gentry, and it was upon such men that Henry Tudor was now pinning his hopes. Despite Henry's commitment to the Yorkists, he was still in a very weak position. His claim, notwithstanding the oath to marry into the Yorkist line, remained as tenuous as ever. 
He had no money and his only allies were always likely to turn their backs upon him and betray him to Richard. In this respect, we need to consider the state of Europe at that time. Remember that France was England's most powerful near neighbour, but it was not the France of today. It was a France which included neither Brittany nor Burgundy. And much of French policy throughout the Wars of the Roses was directed at acquiring and absorbing both territories into France. Not surprisingly, the two duchies of Brittany and Burgundy wanted to retain their independence, but coincident with the emergence of Henry Tudor, there were also political developments in both Brittany and France. In the summer of 1483, the French king, Louis XI, a master diplomat and schemer, had died, leaving a minor, Charles VIII, as king under a regency council. This meant that French policy over the next few years tended to vacillate depending upon which faction dominated the Regency Council at any given time. Brittany, on the other hand, was ruled by an ageing Duke Francis, whose only heir was his daughter Anne. He feared, rightly, that it would be difficult to maintain the Duchy's independence unless Anne married someone who had an interest in preserving the state intact. Whilst Duke Francis had supported Henry Tudor in his 1483 rebellion, he might find it difficult to sustain that support if he came under pressure from England, because he really needed English support to stave off French ambitions. So Henry Tudor, claimant to the English throne, must be seen in the context of Western European diplomacy. He was something of a trump card for any country which might be hostile to England, a way of prompting a regime change in England. In 1483, it was Duke Francis of Brittany who held that card, but he was reluctant to play it. In the winter of 1483-4, Richard put pressure on Brittany by waging war at sea against Breton shipping. It was a rather blunt attempt to force Duke Francis to hand over Henry. Once it became clear that the French Regency Council would continue previous policy against Brittany, the Duke had little option but to make an agreement with Richard III's England. In June 1484, such an agreement was reached, possibly at a point where Duke Francis himself was ill and others prevailed at the Breton court. But either way, the agreement spelt doom for Henry Tudor. Richard promised a thousand archers to help Brittany against France in return for Henry Tudor. At this point, some sources tell us an exciting story of Henry being tipped off by his mother, Margaret Beaufort, via the exiled bishop, John Morton, that he would soon be arrested. Henry, we are told, abandoned his supporters, dashed across the frontier from Brittany into France with only a few close advisers and only narrowly escaped capture. Well, that story could be true, though the first actual evidence that Henry was in France came several months later in October 1484. But this was a critical moment in the sequence of events, though it would not have seemed so to Henry at the time. One suspects that for Henry, leaving the protection of the Duke of Brittany was rather like removing his life jacket before jumping into the sea. Yet the move of Henry to France, though forced, changed everything. For France was unlikely to become England's ally any time soon, 
and would thus have no incentive to hand over Henry to Richard. Prizing Henry out of Brittany might have been achievable, but getting him out of France was near to impossible. What's more, France now had the means of destabilising Richard's hold upon England should it wish to do so, and France also possessed far greater resources to back a Tudor invasion than Brittany. Henry, mindful of the difficulties of keeping his rather unholy coalition of dissidents together, was desperate to invade in 1484. But France was not prepared to provide the necessary resources, and so he remained in France. But by the end of 1484, Henry received a boost in the arrival in France of John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. De Vere, like Jasper Tudor, was a Lancastrian zealot who had never submitted to Yorkist rule, preferring instead to be imprisoned for ten years. This is the same Earl of Oxford who was so successful in the fog of the Battle of Barnet in 1471, though his side was vanquished. He was one of the most competent military commanders of his day, and a real bonus for Henry's chances of success in the field against Richard, should he ever get to England. How Oxford managed to escape from Calais is a story in itself, but a good clue is that he brought his captor, James Blunt, with him. So, as 1484 ended, Richard knew that there could be no invasion by Henry until the spring or summer of 1485. Yet he also knew that such an invasion was now almost inevitable. Indeed, his spies told him that it was certain that Henry would invade in the summer. And I reckon that must have been a relief. The longer he had to keep the kingdom at a state of readiness to face an attack, the more difficult it became, and the more the loyalty of his supporters was being tested. At last, it seemed, Richard would have an opportunity to crush his one remaining opponent.